Welcome back to 10 and 20, official podcast of the Battle of Franklin Trust, where we talk about interesting aspects of Tennessee history in roughly 20 minutes. My name's Brad. And my name's Sarah. This week, we are continuing the story of the McGavick family at Carton. Last episode, we talked about John McGavick and his life leading through the beginning of the Civil War. And this week, we are talking about John's wife, Caroline Winder McGavick, known as Carrie. We're going to cover her early life in Louisiana, her marriage to John, and we will conclude with the events that unfolded during the Battle of Franklin when history landed on her doorstep. Let's start with her early life. She was born on September 9th, 1829 in Natchez, Mississippi. There was a funny story that we found like immediately when she was a baby. Like it's hard to find baby stories back then. But when she was born, apparently she was so small that just for fun, her parents decided to put her in a coffee pot. Yeah, we don't quite know how big this coffee pot is. Or how small she was. Or how small she was. But you have to be pretty small if into any size coffee pot. So (laughs) Um, imagine she's probably a pretty tiny baby. I wonder if they called her coffee pot Carrie growing up. Probably not. (laughs) But now we'll forever remember that. So thank you, Brad. (laughs) Um, We don't know a whole lot about Carrie's early life, uh, but there are a couple of noteworthy details. When she was a year old, her family moved to Homa, Louisiana, which is in Terrebonne Parish, and she was the eldest of 15 children. There is some evidence of a strong Southern heritage from the family recipes that we have. She had gumbo, chicken croquettes, which Brad and I actually don't know what those are. (laughs) They sound good, though. <laughs> they do. And chow chow. Which does not sound good. No, but we actually looked that one up, so we do know what it is. It is a pickled salsa made from vegetables like tomatoes, asparagus, onions, and according to the recipe, will keep for years. Yeah, I don't know if it is, if they actually called it salsa, but when I looked it up, I was like, oh, that's like southern salsa with vegetables like asparagus, which I don't know. Yeah, and everything's pickled. Yeah, it doesn't sound good, but that's a family recipe, and you could can it, and it would last for... For years. For years. In 1845, when Carrie was 16 years old, she was baptized by Reverend William Winans, who gave her a letter telling her to be careful of the, quote, worldly advantages she was given. It alludes to those worldly advantages being both blessings or curses. And that kind of shows that she was born to a wealthy family. And... That from an early age, she was told to keep these worldly advantages in check. Mm-hmm. And we're the Battle of Franklin Trust. We're a museum. So it's really interesting to note all the items that we have in our collection that are associated with Carrie. We were talking to our collections manager the other day. And Beth, who you will hear in two episodes. Yes. Forgot about that. You guys will love her. But we have seven photographs or images of Carrie, 29 objects. And 17 books. It, it seems like books were really important to Carrie. Even later in her life, she would give books to friends and family members with personalized inscriptions. And one of the books that we have in our collection is Carrie's autograph book that she kept when she was young. Yeah, autograph books were really common for women in the 19th century. When people would visit family members or friends, they'd write you little notes, poems, inscriptions inside of it. I remember when I was a kid, I had an autograph book that I took to Disney World and I got like Captain Hook's autograph. Yeah, I was really excited to get the evil stepsisters. Oh, you do the same thing? Yes, of, of course. Um, 
Carrie didn't have Captain Hook's autograph in hers, but uh, she did have a few interesting entries, things like poems and well wishes and some drawings, some really beautiful drawings in there. We're going to read you a couple. We don't actually know who they are from, (laughs) but they were written in 1846. So that means she, quick math, is 17 years old. One of them read, May your character during the remainder of your life be as pure, as irreproachable, and unsullied as the past has been. She was called in one of them the lady, or she was called a lady of the South, which is interesting because more recently there's been a novel written about her called The Widow of the South. That's probably just a coincidence. But then one of Carrie's family members wrote to her in September of 1846, talking about the potential of Carrie being married. They said, Wed not in haste, and never without love, and if possible, with the approbation of parents and friends. After marriage, study to double the joy and divide the grief of him, if any he may have, who may have the good fortune to become the husband of my beloved niece. So basically, whenever you get married, make your husband happier when he's happy and less sad when he's sad. And Carrie does marry John McAvick in Terrebonne Parish, Louisiana, on December 6, 1848. And like we mentioned in the previous episode about John, Carrie and John were first cousins once removed, which means they likely at least knew of one another. Potentially, they may have met prior to, prior to their marriage, which some people didn't know each other at all. So they actually were at least familiar with each other. And around the time of her marriage, when Carrie was 19 years old, a portrait was made of her. The portrait is very large. We have it currently in the house at Carnton, and not only showed her family's wealth, but also shows the family's desire to capture what she looked like before she moved to Tennessee. I always find that picture interesting, too, because she's 19 years old in it, and that that picture has become kind mm-hmm. of iconic, especially with the novel Widow of the South and the fact that anybody who comes to visit, they see that portrait of her. We sell that portrait as in magnet form. Mm-hmm. I always wonder, like, imagine your high school yearbook photo in 150 years, people buy magnets of your high school yearbook photo. Like, that'd be what it was like. Yeah, I had braces, so I hope that never happens. (laughs) Uh, Carrie and John had their first child, who they named Martha Winder, after Carrie's mother, on September 25th, 1849. They had been married for just over 10 months at the time. So very quick. And they went to have four more children, relatively quickly, too. But three of them, Martha, Mary Elizabeth, and an infant named John Randall, all died as children. And of course, that would have been very tragic, but sadly, not all that unusual for that time period. One study we found showed that in 1850, the child mortality rate was 35%. And that's just factoring in children who died before they were five years old. So it doesn't include children who, like Martha, died when she was 12. In 1849, right around when Carrie and John started their family, just after they got married and around when they were having their first child, they received a family Bible. And a family Bible was an important artifact at the time because not only is it the scriptures, it's where you record your family history and important dates. The birth and death dates of all the children are listed there. Some of the information is even recorded through newspaper clippings, birth, death, and family gossip announcements. And the Bible is currently display uh, right here again in the house. Uh, you can see it on tour if you come and visit Carnton. One of the topics worth mentioning while we're talking about their marriage is that Carrie and John were both noted all throughout their lives as having 
exceptional hospitality. And they routinely cared for orphans in their home. This was a practice they continued for years, even after the Civil War. But the rest of the podcast, we are going to spend talking about what happened to Carnton during the Civil War. But one other important topic kind of needs to be addressed before we get there. Carrie McGavick as a slave owner. By 1860, according to the federal census, there were 44 slaves living and working at Carnton. And like we addressed in the previous episode, at least 10 of these people were technically owned by Carrie. These enslaved individuals were given to Carrie by her father, Van Winder, or born into slavery at Carnton. And there's one person in, in particular that we need to address, and her name was Mariah Reddick. Mariah was born about 1834, and she was given to Carrie as a wedding gift from Van Winder, Carrie's father. She was most likely a house slave, meaning that she worked in and around the house, and she likely had multiple roles, including housekeeper and caregiver to the children. What's interesting about Mariah is that she remained familiar with the family even after the war, and there's a photograph of Mariah holding one of Carrie and John's grandchildren, one of their granddaughters, and this is years after the Civil War, years after Mariah was freed. Yeah, even Mariah's obituary says that she nursed four generations in the McGavick family. And it is worth noting that later in Mariah's life, she was a well-known local citizen and midwife based here in Franklin. So she's an interesting person that maybe we'll cover in a future podcast as well. But we wanted to bring her up here. But we believe Mariah, nor any of the other slaves, were here during the Battle of Franklin. At some point after Nashville fell to U.S. forces in February of 1862, John McGavick set most, if not all, of his slaves he owned further south to keep them from escaping into federally occupied areas. A lot of the information about Mariah comes from obituaries that were published about her when she died in 1922. And one of those said that during the war, Colonel McGavick sent all his slaves except two or three further south to keep them from the federal army. During this period, Mariah, who was in Montgomery, Alabama, was a servant to the family of President Jefferson Davis. And of course, that means Confederate President Jefferson Davis. Yes, we believe that she may have worked in his mother-in-law's home. There are several records of John and Carrie hiring other people's slaves to work for them during the war, and several records of them having, I quote, Negroes or colored women at the house. It is possible that the two or three mentioned in Mariah's obituary were not owned by the McGavick family, but were instead rented out. So I wanted to talk for a brief moment about what Carrie was up to during the Civil War. And there's not a whole lot that we know, but we do know that at least earlier in the war, she did her part to contribute to the Confederate war effort. One account written by a local woman regarding the women's contributions in Williamson County in 1861 stated that the women gathered at the Masonic Hall to sew and make uniforms for their war relatives and friends. Representative women from all over the country and town gladly answered the call to help clothe the boys, Mrs. John and Mrs. James McGavick, so that's Carrie and Carrie's sister-in-law, with their sewing woman, Mariah Reddick. They met with their sewing machines, some cut, some basted, and many ran the machines. I always think it's very interesting that Mariah is mentioned in this little memory that this woman has too, because it shows that she was pretty well known among the people here in Franklin that, I, if I remember correctly, this was written 20, 30 years after the Civil War, that she would still remember her name. 
And of course, in a diminishing way of just saying her sewing woman, but still yes. that she was named by this person a couple decades later. That is an interesting point. Yeah, it's a bit condescending, but it's still, it's still interesting. One defining moment, maybe even the defining moment of Carrie and John's lives was the Battle of Franklin. And if you would like more information about the battle itself, what led up to it, what the fighting was actually like, uh, I highly encourage you to check out our podcast series on John Bell Hood, and maybe even our podcast that we did on Todd Carter called Mint Julep. But by this point in time, this is late fall of 1864. The battle is November 30th, 1864. Living at Carnton uh, were Carrie and John and their two kids, nine-year-old Hattie and seven-year-old Winder. And let's review what the family knew the day before the battle. First of all, the Civil War had been going on for about three years. The city of Atlanta, Georgia, had fallen to northern forces just a few months prior. General Sherman was on his march to the sea. And just a few weeks before the Battle of Franklin, Abraham Lincoln was re-elected president, promising to see the war through to its conclusion. And then what the family may have known there may have been some rumors that there were army movements in Middle Tennessee and they were heading towards their home. They were heading in their direction, likely making their way towards Nashville. But what the family certainly did not know was that just 15 miles south of Franklin, in a village called Spring Hill, over 20,000 U.S. soldiers were marching within about 200 yards of a sleeping Confederate army. That U.S. army marched all night long, and in the early morning of November 30th, began to arrive in Franklin, Tennessee, and started setting up defenses in the fields south of town, those being the fields just north of Carnton, the McGavick family home. By late morning, the family likely could have seen the U.S. soldiers in their backyard. Roughly 18,000 federal soldiers had set up defensive lines covering the south side of town. Dozens of cannons were facing south. Some of them pointed towards Carnton. And one thing I always mention on, on my house tour is I talk about the effective range of those cannons. I don't know if we've mentioned that on the podcast before, but cannons could fire for over a mile, which means this family living in their house would have had cannon fire flying past their home. So seeing cannons off in the distance, that was, that was a legitimate threat back then. Now, most likely the first time the family would have interacted with the Confederate army was when General Nathan Bedford Forrest, who was the commander of the Confederate cavalry, used the back porch of Carnton to observe the federal defenses. There was a newspaper written in 1895 or around 1895 from Memphis in which Carrie tells of some of her memories of, of what happened. It says that Carrie, quote, tells of how General Forrest strode through her halls and up the stairway to a gallery above seemingly unconscious of her presence, so absorbed was he in the great tragedy enacted around them and which he was taking so conspicuous a part. Another newspaper from St. Louis had one of the Confederate colonels say that when he applied to General Forrest for orders, the dashing cavalryman told him to report to Mrs. McGavick. By early afternoon, the Confederate Army of Tennessee, roughly 20,000 men, arrived on the field south of Carnton and began setting up an attack formation in a line about two miles from one end to the other. Carnton is now sandwiched between 40,000 men. And at 4 p.m., 30 minutes before sunset, the Confederate army began to march. And I always imagine at the very beginning what the family would have seen, but I also, like, what really makes me wonder is what they would have heard. 
Because you gotta imagine the sound of 20,000 men beginning to march towards your home. You hear the sounds of their bands playing songs like Dixie and Bonnie Blue Flag. Yeah, one soldier said that this was the only time he heard those songs being played as they marched into battle. Yeah, you have to imagine these men know that they're not sneaking up on anybody, so they're making as much noise as they can. You would hear the sounds of the rebel yell. And then you would hear the explosive sounds of artillery. As cannon fire flew over the house and exploded above the advancing Confederates. And it's at this point too that Carton becomes a hospital. General William Waring's division, which totaled 3,500 men, marched toward Carnton. Thomas Markham, a chaplain in Loring's division, rode out in advance of his men and informed the McGavocks that their house was being taken over to be used as a hospital. Coincidentally, Carrie and Thomas appeared to know each other before the battle. They were from the same town in Louisiana. I gotta imagine that would have just felt like a nightmare because you see all these thousands of men marching towards you and then out in the midst of all of it, you see one guy ride up and you know him. Like he's a childhood acquaintance of yours. Like you would feel like you were having a bad dream. I know and I can't remember the exact quote off the top of my head, but I remember Thomas Slater wrote something about how Carrie and John did like willingly open up their hearts and their home here to the wounded. Right, and and not like, not like they were really being asked if they could use their house. Like I don't think the family could have said, you know, no thank you. But what the family's real response was that not only was the house taken over, but, but then the family begins to help and assist. They the embraced it. it. Within a couple of minutes, the house began filling with wounded Confederate soldiers. It was noted that roughly 300 men were treated inside the house, with hundreds more on the grounds outside. Surgeons were performing amputations and other battlefield surgeries in and around the home too, with the family assisting. And there's a great quote. This, this quote is, is kind of a longer one, but I feel like it's very descriptive of what was going on here. It was from a Confederate soldier named Captain William D. Gale. And he said, Mrs. McGavick's house was in the rear of our line. The house is one of the large old fashioned houses of the better class in Tennessee. Two stories high with many rooms. This house was taken as a hospital and the wounded in hundreds were brought to it during the battle and all the night after. Every room was filled. Every bed had two poor bleeding fellows. Every spare space, niche, and corner under the stairs, in the hall, everywhere. But one room for the family. And when the noble old house could hold no more, the yard was appropriate until the wounded and the dead filled that and all were not yet provided for. Our doctors were deficient in bandages, and she began by giving her old linen, then her towels and napkins, then her sheets and tablecloths, then her husband's shirts and her own undergarments. During all this time, the surgeons plied their dreadful work amid the sighs and moans and death rattle. Yet amid all, this noble woman was very active and constantly at work. During all the night, neither she nor any of the household slept, 
but dispensed tea and coffee and such stimulants as she had. And that too, with her own hands, she walked from room to room, from man to man, her very skirts stained in blood. The evening of November 30th, 1864, left a lasting impact on the children as well. Of course it would. I mean, the kids were seven and nine years old. In 1931, Hattie McGavick, who was then well into her 70s, remembered vividly what happened in her home that night. She said, I can still sense the odor of smoke and blood. I recall how the startled cattle came home from the pastures, how restless they became, sniffing and excitedly running about the place, bewildered by the smell of the battlefield. I can still see swarms of soldiers coming in with their dead comrades and lying them down by the hundreds under our spacious shade trees and all about the grounds. I shall carry those awful pictures in my mind down to the day of my death. I was only nine years old then, but it is all as vivid and as real as if it happened only yesterday. The Battle of Franklin itself was over by about 9 p.m., and the U.S. forces crossed the river and moved on to Nashville late that night. By the morning of December 1st, only the Confederate Army remained, but the battlefield was still covered in dead and wounded men. In the brief five hours of fighting, there were around 10,000 casualties. Roughly 7,000 of these were Confederate, and 3,000 were U.S., 2,500 men lay either dead or dying. And included amongst the dead were six Confederate generals who were killed or mortally wounded. The bodies of four of those generals, as well as at least two other officers, were taken to Carnton and they were placed on the back porch. These four generals were John Adams, Hiram Granberry, Otho Strahl, and most famously Patrick Claiborne. Claiborne is notable because he was the highest-ranking officer killed in the Battle of Franklin. But another one that's worth noting is General John Adams, who was a brigade commander, and his brigade was in Loring's division, which used Carnton as their hospital. And I always imagine some of his men, you know, if you're a soldier, like, you're willing to risk your life at the order of your commanding officer. And imagine having gone through what these men went through here in this house And then the next morning you walk out into the porch or you're brought into the porch and there is your fallen leader that you have to say goodbye to. Carrie is reacting to these dead generals too. In a newspaper article where Carrie is remembering what happened the days after the battle, she, and I quote, tells reverently of the body of Claiborne, the great Irish soldier, as it appeared in plain clothes and the faded gray cap so well known to his men with the fatal bullet in the rim over his temple. The only wound, and how she kept this cap and his sword and little trinkets concealed from the enemy until they could be conveyed to friends. That day, December 1st, the Confederate Army oversaw a quick burial of the dead. Each Confederate regiment buried their fallen comrades on the fields on which they fought. Since these men knew one another, they marked their friends' graves with anything they could find, usually scrap wood or fence posts. One soldier mentions writing his friends' names in the lid of a cracker box to mark their grave with that. But the U.S. soldiers, they were buried by the captured U.S. prisoners that the Confederate Army took during the battle. And they buried their federal dead, you know, right where they lay, too. 
The McGavick family cared for wounded Confederate soldiers in their house for about seven months after the battle was over. This wasn't just one night. When the armies leave, the wounded were left behind, and the family was left caring for these men through the end of the Civil War. And as the war drew to a close in the spring of 1865 and the Confederacy crumbled, the McGavick family realized their involvement in the story was far from over. Something would have to be done with the thousands of soldiers whose bodies remained buried in shallow graves in the fields just south of town. So that concludes this week's episode. We're going to resume the McGavick family story in two weeks when we talk about the post-war years and the formation of the McGavick Confederate Cemetery. In the meantime, please follow us on social media. On Instagram, we are 10in20, T-E-N-N, I-N 20 podcasts. And we'll post pictures from this episode. And also follow Carter House and Carnton on Facebook. If you would like to support this podcast, please head to our online store, which is store.boft.org. Pick up one of our 10 and 20 t-shirts and maybe a book. There's a recommendation that we both have read in the last couple of months. Yeah, it's With This Pledge. It's the newest book by Tamara Alexander. Make sure you don't miss an episode of this show uh, by subscribing on whatever podcast app you use. If you have an iPhone, the most the most frequently used app is just the Apple Podcast app. But there's plenty of them. If you subscribe, your phone will automatically download new episodes every other week when we put them out. And if you have any children, specifically 8 through 12 years old, who are interested in history, sign them up for our History Summer Camp this June and July. And with our code SUMMERFUN, all caps, no spaces, you'll get $20 off. And you can find more information about that at boft.org slash summer camp. Reach out to us by sending an email to podcast at boft.org. Let us know how we're doing and send us suggestions for future episodes if you have any. So thank you so much for listening. Join us in two weeks. <laughs>